Hello and welcome to episode 203 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the original drummer for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but also the incredible musician and composer for one of my favourite soundtracks of all time, Drive. Yes, I'm joined by Cliff Martinez. This is a huge interview for me and I'm absolutely thrilled that he's coming on today's episode and that interview will be coming up in just a couple of moments time. I always like to use the intro of each and every episode of Mark and Me to touch base and talk about my previous episode. On episode 202, I was joined by Shane Told, the singer and songwriter from the incredible band Silverstein. I want to say a massive thank you to everyone that listened. The response was absolutely incredible. I actually got to meet Shane this weekend at Slam Dunk Festival in the UK and he told me about how great the response had been as well personally for him from doing the episode, so thanks again from us both. But today is a big one. Drive is one of my favourite films. The soundtrack alone is absolutely exquisite. So I'm thrilled that Cliff is here to talk about this in so much more detail. And also his early days. I mean, being the drummer of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So many stories and so much to share. So I think the best thing to do is to get straight to it. So here's me and Cliff talking all things music. So Cliff, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Glad to be here. Always love talking about myself. So (laughs) it's always a good way to start. So, Cliff, what I want to do today for people that are tuning in and maybe discovering your work for the first time, let's go right back to the very start. So, before you started being a drummer or being in rock bands or anything like that, what made you want to be a musician? Was it a, a certain band that you listened to or an album you bought or a concert you went to? What was it that triggered it for you? Uh, Probably a number of things. Um, one of the biggest ones was seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I think that was 1964. I was 10 years old. That had a big impact on me. Um, I had um, I had a crush on my babysitter who always had like a transistor radio attached to her ear and she listened to a she listened to music all the time, and I kind of, I kind of got into it. As a matter of fact, her boyfriend who used to come over, I thought was really cool, and um, he was a drummer. So um, those things all had an impact on me. I think in '64, '65, my parents took me to the Museum of Modern Art to see an exhibit by the Bachet Brothers. And I saw like their metal sculptures. And many years later, I got a uh, Bache crystal because of the impact that that had on me. So um, back then, radio was kind of the way you got music. And yeah. uh, so I got, you know, very early on, I was, I was listening to the radio and uh, got very excited about music. Um, I think in, in grade school, like around fourth grade, um, the schools encouraged uh, children to take up a musical instrument to play in the orchestra, which would have, which would have been fifth and sixth grade. And um, my parents took me to a local music store and asked me about, um, you know, what instrument would you like to play? And I said, well, guitar. And they said, we don't have a guitar guitar teacher. <laughs> Uh, okay, how about drums? 
well, we have a drum teacher. So that's how I, and, you know, for a couple of years, all I had was the snare drum, but I knew I would one day graduate to the drum set and, you know, not play orchestral music, but play rock and roll. So um, those are, you know, that was a long-winded answer, but there were a lot of things that impacted me and probably ground zero was seeing the Beatles on, the, on television. And obviously during your time, you got to spend three years with the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Now, those early albums are pure funk, absolutely incredibly raw, but it must have been amazing to look back and be part of such a successful band and be in history, uh, you know, with the Hall of Fame and everything that comes with that band. And they're still going strong now. You must be really proud to have been associated with them. Yeah, they uh, their longevity is kind of unusual. There's not many bands that um, you know, survive several decades and different milieus of, of musical styles because music is a, you know, is a fashion. And a lot of bands, well, if they don't explode in a, you know, cloud of, of hatred and animosity for one another, then they, um, they simply go out of fashion and, and cease to be relevant. So the Chili Peppers have persevered. They've managed to kind of, you know, grow and develop. So yeah, I'm I'm proud to have um, been a been a part of the band. And when did it change for you then to go from behind the kit and to start composing? What was it that kind of made you want to take that step and move completely in a completely different direction? Well, getting pushed out of the Chili Peppers helped. Um, yeah, that that got me thinking about. But I, in a way, it was it was timely because I think I was. I was starting to spend less time in nightclubs and bars and concert halls seeing live music and spent more time watching movies. And um, my taste in music has always been a little left of center. I, you know, I, my biggest hero is Captain Beefheart and I got to play with him on his last album. So I've always kind of really liked the fringe of, of, of musical style and i thought that you know you could listen to the entire radio dial and only hear like four or five different styles whereas i thought film music was much more diverse you could hear you know avant-garde classical symphonic music and horror films you could hear jazz you could hear or symphonic music um, you could hear electronic music and that really appealed to me, that kind of the broad range of, of styles in, in film appealed to me. And, um, and I also thought, you know, I'd be able to express my more uh, sort of avant-garde tendencies in film music. So that's what started it. And, and the other thing was that I really um, became fascinated with music technology, which was just beginning around in the 80s yeah it started with the producer of the first chili pepper album uh, andy gill he brought in a lynn drum machine to the recording sessions and he knew that the band was kind of hostile to electronic gizmos so he gave it to me he said you know you should program it and and uh i was completely it was like a love-hate thing i was fascinated by what the drum machine could do I was also threatened by it. I, I felt that I was drummers. I just 
sense that drummers were going to go the way of the brontosaurus. You know, they would just be an extinct species and drums would be the first to go, you know, you know, years later, string players were threatened by technology. And, uh, um, but I kind of sensed that drummers would be the first to go. So I fell in love with the drum machine and it never got used on the first Chili Pepper album, but my fascination with um, music technology, computer music technology started with with that drum machine. I love it. Yeah. So a few years later, obviously we fast forward a bit, but you got Steve, you got to work with Steve Stodenberg, who is one of the best directors I think in the world. And when you look at his back catalogue of incredible films, stuff like Traffic and Sex Lies and Videotape, all those sorts of amazing films that you look back now at, and they're cult classics for a reason. What was it like being such a big fan of film and then getting to work with such a legendary director and be able to put your part to this jigsaw, which is so crucial to any film? Well, I wasn't at all intimidated because Steve Soderbergh at the time in 1989 wasn't really Steve Soderbergh yet. No, was, that's fair, yeah. You know, I saw a rough cut of the film and everybody involved in it knew that it was like a, a good film, but I, I nobody sensed that it would take off, that it would be a big indie hit. Um, we thought it was like, too smart for for what you know or that was my impression i just didn't know i was uncertain that it would find an audience and i think everybody involved was quite stunned at the reception it got at the sundance festival that was i was there on the second day which is kind of when steve started becoming famous yeah uh, and uh so we kind of it was like riding a rocket ship we kind of saw it take off, but, um, you know, again, I didn't know what the future held. I didn't know that he would you know, make a film like traffic. I, I didn't know that he would persevere and develop and become, you know, one of Hollywood's 500 pound gorillas. Um, so I guess I wasn't that intimidated except that I'd never done a film before. No. Years later, Stephen said something like, well, I hired Cliff because he was the only composer I knew in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some truth to that. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. And he was really he was really my guide because he had some strong instincts about music and how to use it in the film. And they're also very you know, distinctive ideas about you know, less is more. And I think Sex, Lies, and Videotape you know, the running time was around 90 minutes, but there was only 20 minutes of music. Yeah. Whole film. So that's pretty stark. You know, years later, I, I, it seems like your average film is half the running time is is music. But um, he had a very stark, minimal electronic approach that um, kind of became my, you know, my style in uh, for many years. And uh it all developed with him with um, Sex, Lies and Videotape because I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I love it and I love the honesty. But then moving obviously on to what we're promoting today, the soundtrack for one of my favourite films, Truly, uh, and I own the soundtrack on vinyl. I'm a huge fan of it, but Drive, it's... You just said less is more. I think the whole film's less is more. The acting performances are never over the top. 
The style is never too much. It's really subtle, but in the way that it leaves you thinking and blown away. And your soundtrack for that is just a work of absolute art. Now, how did it get involved that you started working with Nicholas on this, for me, absolute masterpiece of a film? Well, first, I just wanted to comment on um, Nicholas in general. I, I think he shared a, a, cert, a, a, a certain sensibility with Stephen which is the less is more idea. And I think the power of, of, the, of Drive and of Stevens films is that it never talks down to the, the audience. It's because there's not a lot of dialogue and because he leaves a lot of the conclusions up to the audience to you know, decide, is this, is this scene scary? Is it romantic? Is it this or is that? I think that's the strength of both directors, they, they give the audience credit for being able to think for themselves. And that's what makes their films uh, rewarding to watch, to be an audience of. Um, I guess I didn't answer your question. I'm sorry. What I, did, I was just very intrigued on how you got involved with working with Nicholas. Did he reach out to you because of your previous work? Was it a project that someone was representing for you to get you some work? How did it actually come about that you and Nicholas met to then work on Drive? I'll, I'll try to condense it because it's a little convoluted, but um, I was working on a film called Lincoln, The Lincoln Lawyer. And uh, was that 2010? Uh, 2009, 2010. And um, the head of Lakeshore Music, the Lakeshore film, was uh, Brian McNellis, who was a friend of the Drive's, one of Drive's producers, Adam Siegel. And those two were friends. Uh, Adam, initially, I'm told uh, Nicholas wanted to do all, you know, needle drop, all songs, because he had just, I think his previous film was uh, Bronson. Yeah. And that and that was all songs and he did it that way and that was where he was headed with drive apparently and then at a certain point they just decided that you know i don't think that's going to work i think you need an original score and um adam siegel reached out to brian mcnellis and um asked him if he had any ideas or thoughts and he recommended me he introduced me so adam brian introduced me to nicholas we went out to dinner I knew he was Danish and he took me to the best sushi restaurant in the Valley. And I thought that's kind of weird. He, he knows, seems to know more about LA than I do. <laughs> uh, and then he came over to the house. I had the crystal in the living room. I played it for him. He goes, and I'd played it for directors before. And they always said, yeah, we got to have it in my film. And then when they actually hear it detached from being in the living room, watching me play it, they think it's too dark or too scary or too whatever. Um, but um, so I think those two things, the dinner and then um, playing the crystal in the living room kind of got me, got me the job. I'm watching this film and the way it's filmed and the lack of dialogue and everything. You had quite a big job to fill those voids, but you do it subtly. You do it so well. And it must have been such a pleasure to work on because it is one of the most cult sort of iconic films now of the last 20 years. It's rare that you get to see a film before, um, before you say yes to the job. I mean, 
prior to 2011, I was not a popular composer. So if somebody just said, do you want a job? I would say yes. But, um, you know, <laughs> now I can be somewhat selective, but you still tend to say yes if anybody um, wants to hire you. But back then, it was unusual to see what was a locked picture. It was a fi the final cut of the film minus the sound and music work. And uh, they showed me the film before I agreed to anything. And um, I usually don't see a, you know, a final cut of a film, but I, I fell in love with the movie. I, I thought it was a terrific film. I gave up at that point predicting the success or, or lack of success of any film. Um, so, I just was I just reacted to it and I just thought it was a fantastic film and it would be great to work on and um, the song choice was pretty the, the songs were the five songs that were in the film were all locked in and I thought well I can I can um, I can incorporate that style that kind of 80s synth pop thing I can incorporate that into the the, the score stylistically and um, I think that's, you know, I've been scratching my head for the last, you know, few <laughs> trying to figure out what, what is the recipe? How, do, how would I ever repeat the success of that soundtrack? And I think, you know, I don't really know, but I, I think that's part of it. The fact that the, the songs um, and the score were, are, are integrated because usually the underscore in the songs go their yeah. stylistic ways and and there there it's a very unified um mix of of songs and original underscore and i think somewhere in there is the is the secret formula what i do on the podcast cliff is i ask every guest and we've just hit 200 episodes but every single guest it doesn't matter if they're a writer a director a composer a musician they all get the same question to end with and it's not easy and I think you'll struggle because of your history. The outro piece of music on today's episode is chosen by the guest but it's on the spot so I don't let you come back to me in a week, I don't let you get to think about it too hard but the final piece after we've edited this interview today and it goes out there for the world to listen to, the podcast ends with one piece of music and you get to choose it today right now on the spot. It can be any song, any band, any composer, but what is the song that means a hell of a lot to you that when all this is done and it plays perfectly as an outro song, you'd be really happy with? Pachuco Cadaver by Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band from the 1969 album Trout Mask Replica. Amazing. I like that you knew that. Some people want a few minutes. People start going, I've got a list of three. But you, you're obviously a huge fan and to get to play with that band and be there, it must be a dream come true. Uh. Well, he turned out to be an abusive tyrant, so <laughs> be At careful. At the time, you... yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, it was fantastic because the music was magical to me. I just didn't understand how that possibly could have been written and composed and created and recorded. And I got a front row seat. So, um, yeah, it was, it was it's still like the highlight of my musical career to have worked with him and, and seen his process up close. 
Amazing. Thank you for your time today, Cliff. It's been an absolute honor. Like I said, I get to do interviews all day, every day, but when someone comes up that I absolutely love and I love their work, it's an absolute pleasure. And the soundtrack is something I play regularly. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, thank you. My pleasure. And uh, edit me with uh, impunity. Make me sound, um, you know, make me look like Brad Pitt. (laughs) I'll do my best. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Cliff Martinez. As I said at the start of today's episode, I absolutely adore Drive. And the good news is right now, Second Sight, who for me are the best company out there for Blu-ray and 4K releases, have just this week released Drive as a special edition. The box set is incredible, but honestly, you need to check it out. The packaging alone is worth the money. And if you check out my social media channels this week, I am giving one of those away. So massive thanks for Second Sight for sorting that out for me. If you've really enjoyed today's episode, all I ask is you to hit the share button on either Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All the links to my social media channels are on markandme.com. It costs you absolutely nothing to do and can bring a whole new audience to Mark and Me. So please, if you've enjoyed today's episode, retweet, share it on Facebook or post it on your Instagram. It really goes a long way. And if you've really enjoyed today's episode, I do have a Patreon account. Each and every month, thanks to my amazing friends at Richer Sounds, I have headphones, Sonos, home cinema kits, portable speakers and some incredible prizes to give away just for saying thank you for supporting me on Patreon. Not only that, at the moment you're getting an average of two episodes every single week. Some incredible content, and I am going to start this month doing some exclusive episodes just for people that support me on Patreon. The link is on markandme.com, and please, you can sign up for as little as £1 a month, and it really, really goes a long way. I'm not slowing down anytime soon. You're going to get so many episodes coming out over the next few weeks, and honestly, it's some of the best stuff I've recorded and such a variety of guests. So until then, watch Drive, listen to the soundtrack, take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you all soon. A squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag is fast and bulbous. Got me? Don't dare to glance. Yellow jackets and red devils buzzing round her hair hive hole. She wears her pants like a present, takes her fancy in the pants. A sedan skims along the floorboard. Her two pipes humming carbon coal. Got her wheel out of a B29 Volvo. Brody knob amber. Spanish fringe and talcum tassels, forever amber. 
She looks like an old squaw Indian. She 99, she won't go down. Avocado green, alfalfa yellow, adorn her to the ground. Tattoos and tarnish utensils. A snow white bag full of tears. Drives a cartoon around. Drives a cartoon around. Roma sells a blue umbrella, keeps her up off the ground. Round red sombreros, wrap her high tap horse of shoes. When she unfolds her umbrella, Pachuco's got the blues. Her loving make me so happy, if I smile, I crack my chin. Her eyes are so peaceful, thinks it's heaven she been. Her skin is as smooth as a daisy's, in the center where the sun shines in. Smiles as sweet as honey, her teeth as clean as the cones where the bees go in. When she walks, flowers surround her. Let their nectar come into the air around her. She loves, her love sticks out like stars. Her loving stick out like stars.